for me to live is Christ. The statement that Paul made, you might know the second part of it, of course. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He would uh, allow me a sober warning here on the front end. Dying is gain for you only if living is Christ. Dying is gain if living for you has been Christ. And so uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's word in Acts chapter 20. And let's see this man in action for whom living was Christ. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, as we continue our study through this wonderful book of the Bible. Uh, Verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When When he had gone through those regions, he had given them much encouragement, and he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Anybody have some conviction coming on them yet? And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a while longer, uh, a long while until daybreak. And so he departed and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's pray together. Father, now we're asking by your spirit and by your grace what these words about these people then have to do with us as a people now. I pray you would uh, give us grace to be alive to the scripture. For we know the scripture is alive. Help us to be awake to the scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Just big picture as we're traveling through the book of Acts. Here's where we are in Acts Chapter 20 is Paul has determined that he is going to go to Jerusalem. That's big picture, but it's going to take him a little while. There's no overnight flight. There's no train to take. There's no bus. There's no car. And so traveling from where he is to Jerusalem is not going to be a a quick trip. It's going to be a long trip, an arduous journey. And we'll be traveling with him over the course of these next uh, several chapters. There are several dangers around him, right? I mean, there are people who want to harm him. There are people who want to hurt him as he as he travels but here's just a principle for your for your life your final destination determines your journey does that make sense i mean how you're living your life right now is in large part on the basis of where you think you're going to end and if you're a blood-bought believer in jesus your conviction is that your finishing point is to be with him forever amen I mean, to be with him in heaven forever. And if that's your destination, it ought to be reflected on your day-to-day life. And so here we have 
Paul, and uh, as he's going on this journey, I love the fact that where he returns, he's been to Berea and Thessalonica, where, everywhere he goes, he finds people there that are still walking in the faith and, and uh, growing in the Lord. That's a great mark. If, if you go back along the path you've traveled and you find people of greater faithfulness to the Lord for having met you and been encountered by you. And then, um, and then I'll just mark real quickly, not a major point, but I think it's important that this, these folks are from diverse cultures, diverse backgrounds, Berea, Thessalonica, and then we get to Troas. And then we get here and have an expanded look at one of his stops, Troas. And Paul's there for one day. And let's see what happens here. The believers are gathered on the first day of the week. And now nothing like this has ever happened in a place like this. But as Paul's preaching, one of the people gets drowsy and falls asleep. Now I'll probably have to tell you, it's probably every preacher's dream to preach the passage on falling asleep during the sermon. Right, so we're going we're gonna to linger here for the next six weeks and do a series. No. No, here, we'll just, cut it. we'll just cut right to the chase. I mean, we get it right here. Don't fall asleep. And during a sermon, you might die. That's what the scripture says. So invitation, and we'll go home. There's your, there's your warning. But maybe you've been there. You've been in class, and uh, the teacher was speaking, and your eyelids got really heavy. Or, yes, you've been in church, and the preacher talked, and you began to doze. And believe it or not, I have seen it happen. I've seen a husband begin to nod off and receive the sharp elbow from his wife. I've seen the lean. Have you ever seen the lean? Where someone begins to drift further and further. That's why we mark the pews the way that we do. That you can't just completely fall out. But I will confess there was one time when I almost did stop my sermon to say something because somebody was in one of the pews that we have that doesn't have the pew in front and they were just about to fall flat out and I was just kind of preach kind of hard to preach and watch but what and then finally the person behind them just gently grabbed their shoulder and propped them <laughs> back up you may have noticed we've begun having the choir sit among the congregation I'm not saying I'm just saying <laughs> I was really teasing on that point by the way and then there's the whole matter of people who are wide awake with their eyes open, but you can tell they're not really there. Uh, I just saw every wife in the room just kind of go like this. <laughs> and two-thirds of the husbands just said, what, what did he say? Right. Now, I take great comfort. I take great comfort in the fact that the Apostle Paul, Holy Spirit-filled evangelist, Apostle Paul had someone fall asleep during his sermon, I love the way uh, the good doctor Luke delicately places it or puts it. Verse uh, 7, the end of it, uh, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech. He prolonged his speech. The, the euphemism for he just kept going on and on and on and on and wouldn't wrap up. But, but, just all kidding aside, Paul's leaving. He's leaving at daybreak. He's getting on the boat, and he will never, ever be in Troas again. So in Paul's mind, this is my one shot. What sermon would you preach and what would you emphasize and what would you say if this was it? If I was never going to be here again, what would I say and what would I uh, speak? But even in his urgency, there's a young man named Eutychus, verse 9, sitting at the window. I mean, friends, just practical application here. If you're going to fall asleep, don't fall asleep in a third-story window, okay? Write that down, jot it down. You don't want to do that. Uh, and, and 
sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep. Well, uh, we can relate and appreciate a bit of the humor about physically falling asleep. But what I'd like to do this morning is to highlight three times in the scripture where someone falls asleep physically. But what I think is actually happening is is it's talking about a deeper reality and a deeper truth, is that we can be going through life asleep, not just physically, but you just go through life asleep spiritually. And before we get to those three scenes, I want to take a quick time out to define the difference between being spiritually asleep and spiritually dead, because those are two different things. I mean, to be spiritually dead means, that's actually how we're born. We're born spiritually dead. God had born Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. And, and you go back and read Genesis 3, and you can understand this is what it means to be spiritually dead, is you have no sensitivity to God, no sensitivity to his word, his ways, no really desire to know him or want to be his. That's what it means to be spiritually dead, and we're all born spiritually dead. But the grace of God and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him can take you from spiritual death to spiritual life. If you want to study that in detail, I think Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is about the best passage for that. But then those who've been raised from spiritual death to life can have a condition that we're going to call being spiritually asleep. Now, you're alive, but you're asleep. Does that make sense? I want us to all be on the same page before we jump in. But I want you to distinguish now between being spiritually dead and spiritually asleep. The goal is that you'd be spiritually alive and awake, attentive, learning, and so on and so forth. So we're going to take three examples of when somebody falls asleep, and I want to just give you a a warning from each of those examples. One's going to be in the Old Testament, one's going to be in the Gospels, and then one will actually come back here to Acts chapter 20. So let's go to the Old Testament example first, and that's going to be in the book of Judges, and Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. Now, uh, your uh, outline in your uh, bulletin is blank, but I do have an outline you'll be able to follow along on the screen. And so the first portion of the sermon, I wanted to talk to you about the dangers of sleeping at the wrong time. The wrong time. We all need sleep and we all need rest, but I want to talk to you about the dangers of sleeping at the wrong time. And so here we go, uh, Judges chapter 16 is Samson. He's the strongest man in the world. There's not anybody in this room this morning who would have won a wrestling match with Samson. Nobody here that would have won an arm wrestling competition with Samson, right? He would have won the gold medal in the deadlift. He would have won the gold medal in wrestling. He was the, uh, there was nobody his physical equal. But the interesting thing is he was physically powerful, but a spiritual weakling. And friends, that happens frequently. People who are physically strong can frequently be spiritually weak because physical strength can have the same effect on a person as great material wealth can have on a person. It makes you spiritually weak and begin, you begin to trust in the wrong things. And on top of being a spiritual weakling, he picks the wrong woman. Can I give you another practical piece of advice? Frequently when you're spiritually weak, you'll pick the wrong woman or the wrong man. He picks, a, he picks a woman that actually isn't there to help him. She's there to hurt him. 
And there's a long string of this weakness in his life. Uh, uh, not Samson 16, but Judges 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute. And when he went into her, and he went into her, the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night in the gate of the city. You have to just understand, in those days, uh, the enemies of uh, Samson, their main goal was to eliminate his threat. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is the front of Hebron. And after this, he left a woman in the valley of Storek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, seduce him. See where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him. That we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you each, ele- uh, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies. And how you might be bound that one could subdue you. We won't read all these verses, but I'll just listen to this. Not once, not twice. But three times, Delilah sets a snare for Samson. And Samson keeps going back. Just real quick. The strongest man who ever lived was Samson. The wisest man who ever lived was Solomon. And the one in the scripture called the man after God's own heart, David. They all succumbed to the sin of adultery. We tracking together? Strongest man, wisest man. And even the man who the scripture says is after God's own heart all succumb to the same temptation, the the destructive sin of adultery. May that be a sober reminder for us all. But look what happens here. Verse 15. She said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me, O Samson? You've mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God. First time he's used that word in a long time, from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak as like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her his all his heart, she went and called the lords of the Philistines. She wants her money, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a, did you see it? She made him sleep on her knees. She put him night-night. She called a man and had him shave off his seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free but he did not know that the Lord had left him so here's warning number one the dangers of sleeping at the wrong time number one sleep deceives us about what is truly dangerous sleep deceives us about what is truly dangerous Samson for all his strength was actually quite foolish The strongest man in the world was weak when he was asleep. When I was uh, 25, I think it was, I had my wisdom teeth removed. I I thought I was one of those that just didn't have wisdom teeth, you know. Shows you how wise I am. So 
So they said they were impacted. And they were really going to have to go in there and, I mean, I don't know. The, the, the doctor made it sound like this was one of the worst cases he had ever seen. They were just really going to be involved. And so, uh, so I sat down in the chair, and he began to talk to me, and they were going to put me to sleep, right? So puts the thing, and I, I don't know why I remember this so clearly, but I had that, and I was breathing. He began to talk to me, and I can still, if I go back in my mind's eye, I can still see the scene as he's talked, and I could hear, and it sounded like his voice was getting slower and slower and I was trying to fight it but then he kept telling breathe in deeply and then before I knew it I was asleep and and friends I want to use that as an illustration that sin lulls you to sleep sin has such a soothing voice right doesn't sound like a serpent doesn't sound like deception doesn't sound like it'll end in destruction but that's what happened in Samson's life he goes to sleep right beside what's truly dangerous in his life. Sin does this. It takes away all your spiritual vitality and sense of urgency. And before you know it, you're completely numb to its effects. I mean, can we just compare and contrast Samson's life here in Judges to Paul in Acts? And they're completely different, aren't they? I mean, think of the benefits. I don't know how much you know about Samson's life, but his parents were godly. They were God-fearing, prayerful parents. He'd have people, he'd have people poured his life into him and people who trusted in him and believed in him. He has so much potential, but his heart went after adultery and lust. And before you know it, he's completely off course. And the mission that he had, he's not able to truly fulfill. He kind of goes out, you know his story, in a blaze of glory. But, this is important, he achieved so much less than what he was capable of because sin had him sleeping. One of the saddest verses in the Bible to me is Judges chapter 16, verse 20. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times, as at other times and shake myself free but he did not know the lord had left him don't get it wrong friends his strength was not in his hair his strength was in the lord and when he drifted from the lord he drifted from his strength the danger can be right upon us and we never see it coming the danger of the consequences of our actions the danger of a drifting or wayward son or daughter the danger of a neglected spouse, the danger of overlooking the opportunity to help and love someone in the name of Jesus. Why do you see, I'm sorry, who do you see Samson helping in this chapter? And you go through his whole life, his entire focus is on himself. And that's a, that's a warning light. If you're awake enough to hear this warning light, you're spiritually sleeping when your focus is on on yourself. And Samson, the irony is, he finally does wake up, but in the end was far less accomplished, accomplished far less rather than what he was capable of. Sin makes you waste your years. Sin leaves you in a spiritual faith, a haze and fog, and uh, you don't get those days back, friends. So morning number one, sleep deceives us about what's truly dangerous. Let's turn over here to the Gospels for our second scene, and that's in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Verse 39 is where we'll read. 
Jesus is with his disciples. It's late at night. They've been at the table of the Last Supper, so their stomachs are full. It's dark, and it's late. So we can all appreciate and understand why they might be a little bit drowsy. Let's read together uh, Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. Jesus' custom was to set aside time to pray. So you want to be like Jesus, have a custom of prayerfulness, right? So Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. I love that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. The scripture says when he returns, he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. Your end destination determines the course that you take. Amen? And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you might not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them earnestly praying alongside of him. No, of course, that's not what it says. He found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, I want you to look at his question. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Sleep, sleeping, sleeping when Jesus is in agony. Well, when we carefully consider the statements of Jesus, there's always so much wisdom, isn't there? Look at his first statement in verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The number one defense against temptation is what, according to Jesus? Jesus, you pray, that you pray. As he prays more earnestly, they prayed less. As he prays with greater urgency, they lose focus and fall asleep. And friends, here's a great reminder of how much we need Jesus as our Savior. It's a reminder that we are not capable of doing what he requires. But he is, amen? He is. The greatest sign uh, that you're uh, spiritually asleep, asleep, I'll get my words out in a moment, is a lack of prayer. So that's that's the number two danger. Sleep deprives us of prayerfulness. In fact, we might be able to say and define spiritual sleep as prayerlessness itself. Now, the number one indicator of your spiritual health is your prayer life. The number two indicator is how you handle tangled Christmas lights, by the way. (laughs) And right behind that is how you handle the big picture of getting all your family together to snap your picture. That's okay. We'll move on. It's a great reminder that even when we are asleep, Jesus is working for our good. Even when we don't listen to him, he's faithful to himself. Even when we can't muster up the energy to obey, he is obedient. Where we're faithless, he's faithful, amen? Where we're asleep, he's awake. Where he's urgent, we're complacent. Where he's in agony, we're at ease. Where he is earnest, we are careless. And friends, when we look at Jesus in this picture or this text, we see a picture of spiritual vitality. I want you to see what he's in agony about, by the way. It says, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup 
from me. What is he talking about? Removing a cup. If you understand the teaching of Scripture, what he's uh, talking about is the cup of what we'll call God's wrath. God has a righteous wrath against sin, amen? And we talked about this a little bit last week. In our spiritual either dead state or even in our spiritual we're asleep state, we don't think that sin's that big a deal. We equate it with, you know, an overdue library book, as we talked about last week. I mean, is it really that big a deal? But to God, sin is an affront. Sin is telling God that he doesn't matter, his input isn't wanted. A sin tells God that uh, we, we, don't even, we don't even want or need him. And here is Jesus in Gethsemane, and as he's praying, he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Now, friends, Jesus was well aware of the physical suffering the crucifixion was going to uh, have, right? I mean, just think about for a moment the physical suffering of being nailed to a cross. There's probably nothing worse. But it's not that that Jesus is in agony over. It's this cup. <coughs> well, might uh, say it this way. Our, our sin is us telling we don't want to be with God. Do you know what was most precious to Jesus? The sinless one was being with the Father. And when he drinks the cup, what's happening is he's being separated from the Father. And not just separated, but God's righteous wrath is being poured out on him. And friends, when Jesus was experiencing the agony of that moment, Peter and James and John were snoozing. It's quite a picture, isn't it? Even today, even in this moment, the most urgent news in eternity, and still so many of us can be indifferent if not asleep to the agony Jesus endures. I know the spirit of our age, the suggestion that there are many ways to God for those that even believe it, that there is a God. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you're going to have to wrestle with this text. For if there was another way, then we explain Jesus' agony. If there's another way, why does he go to the cross at all? In fact, the scripture asks this question, or actually the Apostle Paul makes this statement in Galatians. If righteousness could be obtained by the law, then Christ died needlessly. So when we suggest that there's multiple ways to heaven, what we're really saying is, Jesus, the agony that you endured on the cross wasn't actually necessary. But friends, what the scripture teaches is that not only is Jesus a way to the Father, He's the only way to the Father. He says then as he prays in agony, he's sweating blood, y'all. There's no greater agony than this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What it teaches us is that Jesus would rather go to the cross for us than to remain in heaven without us. Uh, even though in our sin we said, we don't want you, God, his response in kindness is, well, I still want you. And uh, expression of that desire from his heart is seen at the cross. Well, sleep deceives us about what's truly dangerous. Sleep deprives us of prayerfulness. And now let's return to where we started here in Acts 20 and get one more warning. Acts chapter 20. Verses 9 through 12 again. And a young man named Eutychus. Now in those days, the Sabbath for them was a work day. And we're in the transition. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, the, the first day of the week was a work day. We're in the transition. The Christianity's new on the scene. They'd just begun to worship 
God on Sunday because that's the resurrection day. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking with them the spices that they had prepared. And when they got there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And that's why we worship on Sunday, because Sunday's resurrection day. But most of these people that are gathered here, they gathered after they've worked all day. Uh, And then it says there are many lamps in the upper room where they're gathered. So there's a lot of people in a small place and you don't have electricity, obviously. So those torches are going. It's warm. That soft glow of the candle, the torches and sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep. I want you to notice why when he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked. And then the good Dr. Luke trying to be nice. Still longer. And being overcome by sleep. He fell. He fell down from the third story. And was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him. And taking him in his arms said do not be alarmed. His life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten. He conversed with him a long while until daybreak. I I, I bet after the boy has been brought from death to life, everybody really paid attention then. I doubt anybody else fell asleep. They took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Azos, intending to take Paul aboard there. So as we arranged, intending himself to go by land. Well, um, third warning is this. Sleep deafens us to what we need to hear. What we need to hear. It's the only time Paul's going to be in Troas. I mean, can you imagine if your story was, the Apostle Paul was only in my town one time, and he only talked one time, and I slammed fell asleep while he was talking. I mean, that, that, would be, oh, that would be an interesting story to tell, <laughs> wouldn't it? Well, that's what happens to, to Eutychus. Think of all that we listen to that we don't really need to hear. And think of everything that's come into your ears this week that you don't really need. Think of all the television, the radio, the podcasts, the ball games, the noise you've recently listened to that you don't really need to hear. And think of all the time that we take not to listen to what we really do need. Now, they were attentive after one had been brought from death to life physically, right? Paul says, do not be alarmed, his life's in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak before he departed. And can I just ask this question? Should those who have been brought from death to life spiritually be lesser listeners than they were? Does that make sense? I mean, if you've gone from death to life spiritually, shouldn't we be better listeners than one who's gone from death to life physically? So let me just give you three real quick Real quick points on how to stay awake. So those are the warnings. Now just how to stay awake. Let's take a few cues from Paul, one who was truly awake. So I've got three, and we're just going to read three uh, passages from his letters, uh, beginning in verse uh, in, in Galatians. So turn with me to Galatians. Paul was awake. Paul was alert. Paul was active. Paul invested his life in things that really mattered. So let's uh, let's take some cues from him. Let's begin here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Oh, if Samson would have heard that warning. 
And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So how to stay awake? Here's number one. Remember that your true rest is coming. Remember your true rest is coming. It's coming. You've not got many more opportunities. Everybody listening to me? It's what the scripture says. Paul says, so then as we have opportunity, what's the implication? There's coming a day when you're done. Game's over. You're going to glory. You're going to heaven, right? With Jesus forever. As you have opportunity and you've got one really, really, really brief life. The Bible says it's a vapor. It's here a moment, gone the next. As you have opportunity, do good. You know why I think Paul's talked so long in Troas? The only opportunity I've got. Only time I'll ever be here in Troas. And so he kept talking, and then he said, well, I can't finish yet. A little bit longer, a little bit longer. Oh, the guy just fell out the window. Let me go raise him up, and we'll go back, and we'll talk a little bit longer until the boat comes, and I'm sailing away. Friends, you're going to sail away from this life sooner than you know it. And remember that your true rest is coming. You don't have a lot of time to waste. Your rest is in Christ. So, yes, we all need rest. We all need rest. I get it. I know it. Nobody's able to stay awake 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and so on and so forth. But I guess I'd put it this way. I want to get to heaven tired. You know what I mean? I want to get to heaven tired because I've not wasted my opportunities. Paul talked a lot about his coming rest. He knew his race would end. He uses those terms. I'm going to get to the finish line. But don't pull up before you get there. So that's uh, how to stay awake, number one. Remember, your true rest, it is coming. You're in Galatians. Flip over two books to Philippians. So Galatians, Ephesians, then Philippians. And read with me from chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or death. Now when Paul's writing this letter, he's in prison, and uh, he doesn't know if he's going to get out or not. Verse 21, we referred to it earlier, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Does it mean fruitful labor for you? Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, this is not a selfish man. This is a man who lives his whole life for others. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a great way to live your life. I think that's how Paul lived it. I want my life to be worthy of the gospel. So here's the second one. Resist the urge to seek your comfort here and now. And I think those are the two great idols in the United States of America. Our comfort. Well, that's one of the big ones. We'll just stop at that. We'll save the other for another day. But just, I just want some comfort. I just want to sleep through my life. Well, the day that Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, 
he began to resist the urge to seek his comfort in the here and now. One more, and that's in 1 Thessalonians, so keep flipping. Same direction that you went from uh, Galatians to Philippians. Flip over a couple more books to 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 5. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up as you are doing. So the last one here is to resolve not to waste your quickly passing opportunities, which we've already talked about a little bit uh, already, but just give you the encouragement that Paul gives to the Thessalonians. Here's what was going on in Thessalonica. We've studied where Paul went to that city, and he, and he preached, and he, was, he wasn't there long. And you might remember that's where Jason lived, and they roughed Jason up, and so on and, and so forth. But Paul, having not had opportunity to be there very long, had a so uh, hammered home to them the fact that Jesus was going to come back soon that they kind of quit their jobs, many of them did, and uh, they were sort of on an extended vacation until Jesus came back. They just kind of dropped out of life. <laughs> I mean, that's, if, if you go read First and Second Thessalonians, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll, there, there's a reason, for example, that it's to them that Paul writes, uh, unless a man work, he shall not eat. These are the kind of warnings that Paul had to give because they were so focused that Jesus was going to come back that they just kind of dropped out of life. Now, all these opportunities were quickly passing, and they kind of became this holy huddle where they would meet together and they would eat together, but they never uh, shared the gospel with anybody else and weren't very much involved in missions or much of anything. They were just going to huddle together. And friends, we still face this dilemma, and we still face this temptation. I mean, I know I'm going to heaven, so I'm good. But that's not Christ-like. I mean, the church, our church family is not where you're going to get in here, and we're, I mean, we're going to just stay here. That's what Paul is saying. <laughs> that's what Paul is saying is... Uh, Let's not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Just to repeat the warnings. And as I repeat them, just maybe see if you've got some of this going on in your own life. Because we don't come to the Bible just to write some things down and go through an outline. We come to the scripture for help. Is that when we're sleeping spiritually, we're deceived about what's truly dangerous. You're going to sleep near something that's actually going to destroy you. It's a lie, friends. It's a lie. It's a lie that the sin won't destroy you. In fact, that's sin's number one lie. So if you're locked up in lust, if you're locked up in pornography, if you're locked up in anger, and you're thinking, well, this isn't going to destroy me, Samson might tell you otherwise, right? Don't, 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 don't make friends with what will ultimately destroy you. Delilah is a great example of sin that makes us cozy, but in the end it will destroy us. Because that's what Samson thought. He thought, oh, as at other times. But he'd actually come to the last time. We track him together. Don't sleep 
through what's going to destroy you. Secondly, is sleep deprives us of prayerfulness. It's prayerfulness. The most agonizing moment, I want you to see it, the most agonizing moment of the earthly ministry of Jesus, he was absolutely by himself. Nobody stayed awake with him. On one hand, on one hand, that teaches us about his uniqueness and that he is truly Lord and Savior. But on the other hand, nobody would stay awake with him. Now, the Holy Spirit has come, so we ought to be a little bit different, right? Again, Bethlehem, God with us. Calvary, God for us. Pentecost, God in us. And if Jesus isn't sleeping and now the Spirit is in you, guess what that would mean of you? We ought not to be sleeping through prayerfulness either. And then third, sleep deafens us to what we need to hear. It even deafens us over the warning not to sleep, right? Sleep through the warning not to sleep. Well, it can certainly happen. But may we, but may we remember that our true rest is coming. May we resist the urge. It's a strong one, especially in our culture, to seek our comfort here and now. And may we resolve not to waste our quickly passing opportunities. One more scripture, and then we'll pray together, have our invitation together. Just came to my mind, so I'm going to read it to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 13. But when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, for the days are evil. May we not sleep through the evil days. Let's stand together and pray together. Seek the face of the Lord together. Invitation time. Invitation time is a resolve time. It's decision time. It's I got to make a change here time. It's a, it's a Holy Spirit would convict me from the word time. So don't sleep through the invitation either. I hope these warnings have been helpful to your soul this morning as we pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that um, he was in agony in the garden because of my sin. And he resolved to pay for my sin on the cross in his own body. His shed blood is my pardon. And I thank you, Father, for Jesus. I don't believe that him shedding his blood was just a way or even the best way of many ways. I believe it's the only way for my sin to be atoned for. And so in response to that, Father, I'm praying for myself in my own life that I wouldn't sleep away the days spiritually, opportunities passing. People who need to hear the gospel, I just walk by. God, give us grace. Uh, shake us from our slumber for the days are evil the times are urgent and the opportunities are quickly passing so Father during this invitation help us to be responsive and attentive to your warnings and your encouragements from scripture we pray in Jesus name Amen